You know, we just sang the words, I, I want to know you more. And guess what? You can know him more. It's up to you. Like, like the, the ball's in your court. If you want to know God more, you can know him more. Amen? Amen? All right, you're awake. Hey, I want to start off with some words that the Apostle John put the paper 2,000 years ago. Words we actually read together a few weeks back. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, someone say through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all, someone say, yet to all, who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Uh, John writes, we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. May God bless the reading of His Word. Heavenly Father, we come before You, and, and God, it's crazy to imagine that one day Your Son put on flesh and walk this planet. Lord, the people got to talk to God. They got to share meals with God. That They got to hear God speak. They got to see God do miracles. They got to touch him. And God, we just thank you for coming down to reveal yourself to us. We thank you that we can be called children of God and and God, I, I pray that as we open your word today, God, that your word will come alive and active to us, Lord. Father, I pray that you'll help me to share these truths in a way that, God, that brings you honor and glory. I, I pray, God, that we will hear exactly what you want to speak to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in this verse-by-verse -verse study of the gospel of Matthew, and this morning, the fourth Sunday... In the 28th day of the year 2024, we're moving on to a brand new chapter, Matthew chapter 12. And today we will unpack the first 14 verses of that chapter in a conversation that I'm calling the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, now, as we said the last few weeks, in the first 10 chapters of, of his gospel, uh, Matthew's primary purpose is to tell us this is who Jesus is. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is God's son, the one the Father loves, and with him, he's well pleased. He is the one who speaks with authority and the one who has all authority over disease, over death, over nature, over sin. He is the one true king whose unshakable and everlasting kingdom is now at hand. He is the one who acknowledges and disowns men before the Father in heaven. He is the Savior. He is 
their Messiah. And then beginning in chapter 11, Matthew begins to record for us the various responses that people began to have to both the person and the message of Jesus. And we find as John wrote that though he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. We find that he, he came to his own, he, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Honestly, like today, most people did not receive Jesus. When he dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. They did not believe in his name. They did not find life or become children of God. As Jesus says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. Yes, Jesus came to his own. He, he came to the Jewish people. He came to the descendants of both Abraham and of the promise. And they did not recognize him or receive him. In fact, they would plot and conspire with the Roman government to murder him on a cross. In Maple Grove, it's in our text today that those plans begin and then begin to grow and grow and grow. I want us to check out the very last verse of our text this morning. We read this. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Uh, uh, that word kill is a word that means to destroy, to abolish. So, so they made plans to kill Jesus, to destroy Jesus, to abolish Jesus. Like, how do we get here? I mean, for over a year plus, all Jesus has been doing is teaching about the kingdom and healing hundreds, maybe thousands of people. I mean, like, I'm sure that everybody knew somebody that experienced the healing touch of Jesus. And yet Matthew says, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill him. Again, how do we get here? Now understand, the ways of opposition to Jesus began to stir when Jesus was just a toddler. Remember when Herod, the crazy, cruel, and paranoid king, wanted to kill him? And listen, the ways of opposition from the religious leaders and the ruling class continued to grow as John the Baptist, his forerunner, he called them a brood of vipers, not a compliment, by the way. And he said, hey, hey guys, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? This opposition grew as Jesus and his kingdom manifesto, also known as the Sermon on the Mount, said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And listen, those words did not increase his poll numbers among the religious elite. And you could feel this opposition and hostility growing even stronger when they accuse Jesus of blasphemy when he says he can forgive sins and when they catch him eating a meal with tax collectors and sinners. And you can almost see their heads spinning and their fists clenched as Jesus tells them, they who are so proud of who they were, you know what, you are worse than and you're worse off than the wicked cities of Tyre, Sidon, And Sodom. Because they'll do better on the day of judgment than you. Because you saw more miracles, you heard more sermons, and you still refuse to repent and turn to me. As we said a few weeks back, 
greater the, the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. The greater the exposure to the light, the greater the punishment for not receiving that light. The greater exposure to the gospel truth, the greater condemnation for refusing to accept that truth. Greater the privilege, greater responsibility. And Maple Grove, we live in a land of gospel opportunity. Amen? And what are we doing with that privilege? And listen, the waves that have been stirring for the first 11 chapters become a full-fledged tsunami of hatred and hostility and a mindset of, we must stop this guy, Jesus, whatever it takes. He's too much of a threat to all we believe and hold so dear. Okay, what was it that pushed the religious elite over the edge in Matthew chapter 12? Such that they decide their only solution is to destroy abolish and kill him. And I'm saying in this chapter, Jesus is going to attack and come against the very thing that defined them. Uh, the very thing that empowered them and the religious system that they had created. I mean, it, it defined who they were. It defined their relationship with God. And it's it, what gave them both power and position within a Jewish community Yes, power and position were two things that they had zero intention of ever giving up. Understand, Maple Grove, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is going to declare that he not them, that he not their understanding, that he not their interpretation, that he not their rules, regulations, traditions, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And yet them are not just fighting words. Them are signing your own death warrant kind of words. Get it? Good. The result? They begin to plot how they might destroy and kill Jesus. Understand the philosophy of the religious leaders, the religious elite, was if you cannot handle the truth, do what you can to destroy that truth and the messenger of that truth. And listen, even though Jesus knew that hostility, hatred, and rejection were going to happen, he did not want it to happen. He made that so clear in Matthew 23. We'll get to that in the year 2026, maybe. And he says this. I mean, just picture this. He's, he's looking at They're rejecting him. And he says this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets. And, and so those sent to you. How, how often I long to gather you. Gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. He said, man, I, I wanted you to come. I wanted you to come under my protection. But you didn't want it. Okay, here's how I want to attack our text this morning. I, I want to talk about some necessary background stuff. And then we'll look at verses 1 and 2, their accusation. Jesus' answer, and then we'll look at, they're looking for a reason to charge Jesus with breaking the Sabbath. We see how they missed him point, and then our, and I left the word out here, our big so what? Like, we get then like, hey, so what? Why does it even matter? How, how does it apply to our life today? Okay, it, it's going to be a good time. Before we go there, a reminder, and then a take two. 
First a reminder. Uh, uh, next Friday and Saturday, I've been talking about this for, for about a month now. We're having our, our first Rediscovering Discipleship, making Jesus' final words. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things. Making Jesus' final words are what? Our first work. And many times in the church, that's the last work. And, and, and what I've learned and, and experienced, what we know, and you know that worship, programs, and preaching do not make disciples. I mean, if they did, our churches and our communities will be overflowing with thousands and thousands of fully devoted followers of Jesus. They'd be like everywhere. And we know that's not the case. And, and one of the reasons we're doing this, because Jesus commanded it, and because we're convinced, I'm convinced, that the best thing we could do for any Jesus follower is to help them become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And that the best thing we can do for any lost man or woman out there is to help them meet Jesus and then become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, now this is a first step in, in, in us becoming a church of disciples that make disciples. It, it's been... Over 10 years that we said that one of our missions is to make disciples, we have failed at doing it. We haven't done a good job, haven't thought about it, haven't planned about it, haven't talked about it. What is a disciple? What's the look? How do we get there? All right? We haven't done good, right? It doesn't matter if it's on a banner, right? It doesn't matter if you have a fish on your car if you're not going to live like Jesus. Maybe take that off, right? And, and so I'm excited about this. And you can be a part of it, Friday night, 6.30 to 9. My wife is making her famous pasta. You're going to love it. And on Saturday, I'm going to call him up this week to verify. Uh, Walter's going to provide lunch for us. I've said it four times. Walter, if you're watching, I'm coming for you, baby. All right? And, and, and uh, what's it going to be? We're going to watch some videos, and then we're going to have some roundtable discussions. And this is just to begin the process, Right? I'm not like, well, we had a Friday and Saturday. We're ready to go. No, we're just, we're just getting started, right? And so you're welcome. You can sign up online or you can text me at 434. Oh, I thought I had that up there. 434-284-1057. Or you can sign up online. And that's all I have to say about that. And we will take two. Get up there. Get your blood flowing. Get some coffee. You need it. And I'll be back here in two. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather in your house with your people. Thank you for all the great conversations that have happened in the last few minutes. Help them to stop. No. Uh, Lord, just thank you that we can just be a family and dig into your word together. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hey, I do want you, uh, Rich McKinnon told me that uh, on Saturday, his life group, a lady who Babysits for his life group is going to be doing childcare here at the church on Saturday. If that would help some of you be able to attend, just get with Rich over there. He'll hook you up on that. Okay, some necessary uh, background stuff. Now, you see, there's some stuff we need to go over first before we dive into the text, and that'll help us understand it more and see more fully the impact of what's going down in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Um, one, one background stuff we need to talk about that's important is 
there were, there were four types of laws in the Old Testament. You basically had dietary laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. If you notice the asterisk, dietary, civil, and ceremonial are not binding on the Christian. Um, moral laws obviously are. Uh, now, back in the summer of 2022, we looked at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, uh, when Jesus said, hey, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And when he said that, hey, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter heaven. Well, I did two messages, one called Do Not Even Think, and one called You Have Heard It Said, But I Say to You. And if you need to be a refresher on what is the relationship between the law and the Christian, I would encourage you to check those messages out. I don't have time to go over them today. All right? Good stuff, though. All right. Now let's talk about uh, the Sabbath. And now it's in the Ten Commandments that we find the Sabbath. Does anybody know the two places in the Bible where we find the Ten Commandments recorded? Exodus 20, and where else? Deuteronomy 5. Uh, why twice? Because the people who heard it over the age of 18 who heard it in Exodus 20, uh, they bought the farm in the desert, right? Uh, not literally, they died. You know, I didn't buy a farm. I don't think there was any farms there. But, and so this new generation needed to hear the law. And here's what we read in Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you should labor and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you should do no work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days, someone say, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> Sorry. I put a cough drop in during the break. Think like, I'm not talking too well. I have a cough. It's a Malone cough. I'm not sick. Me, I get a cough. And Chelsea and John, it lasts for months. I thought the cough was going help me. I couldn't talk. I thought I could quietly put it into my cup of water. And it didn't work because you heard the take. Okay. Sorry. And yeah, I'll, I'll still drink out of it because that's my mouth, my cough drop. But don't, I won't share that with you. All right. <laughs> this is me. I got nothing else to tell you. Right. Anyhow. Hey, and so the Sabbath, it was intended to be a time of rest that God put into his law for the benefit of his people. It was to benefit them physically and spiritually. And it follows the example of God that he set for us in the beginning. We read in Genesis 2, verse 2, but on the seventh day, God had rested. Uh, on the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all the work. Now, the verb to rest is the Hebrew word Shabbat. It's where we get our English word Sabbath. It, it means to rest. It means to cease. And, and their Sabbath day was the day that they stopped doing the stuff they did during the week. Again, the purpose was to benefit them both spiritually and physically. Physically, it was to give them rest, time to cease, to pause, to slow down, to breathe, to enjoy, 
and celebrate the goodness of God and a time to connect with God spiritually. Now, although God, and this is an important point, although God rested on the seventh day, God did not command them to rest on the seventh day until the Mosaic law. Understand, it was in the Mosaic law that God first articulated the Sabbath rest. That's because it is a special covenantal sign between God and Israel. And listen, the Sabbath commandment is the only commandment of the nine that is ceremonial. The other nine are all moral absolutes. Listen, the reason we know this is because when you come to the New Testament, every command is repeated except the command to obey the Sabbath day. Again, that's because it was a covenantal sign, much like circumcision was between God and Israel. In fact, Paul wrote these words to the church at Colossae. You see, there were some people coming to the church who were saying to the Gentile Christians, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you have to follow all the laws, rules, traditions, and regulations of the Old Testament. Here's what Paul wrote. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a what? They are a a shadow of things that were to come. Like all these things were pointing to something greater. All these things in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, the priesthood, everything was already point, always pointing to Jesus. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found where? It's found in Christ. Paul says that it's just a shadow. The reality, which is greater, is Christ. However, when Jesus walked the streets of Palestine, honoring the Sabbath was a ceremonial law of God that was in place, binding to Israel, but not binding to the Christian. And so Jesus and the disciples, they would have honored the Sabbath day. However, they would not have honored it in the way that the Pharisees honored it, but honored in the way that God said it should be honored. Which brings us to the next important background stuff. Let's talk about Sabbath uh, the Pharisaic Sabbath. And, and here's a little drawing I, I came up with, and, and it's pretty amazing. <laughs> and and so, so first you have God's law, the Mosaic law. And, and here's what it says about the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, which, what we read, it says, yeah, no work on the Sabbath. We read in Exodus 34, verse 21, no plowing or harvesting on the Sabbath. Read in Exodus 35, verse 3, that you cannot kindle a fire in your homes on the Sabbath. Um, there's no baking or boiling food on the Sabbath, Exodus 16, verse 23. There's no traveling on the Sabbath, Exodus 16, 29. And so the religious leaders are like, okay, what exactly, exactly constitutes work, plowing, harvesting, kindling a fire, baking, and traveling? And so they came with their own interpretation of what it meant not to do these things. And now first it was just an oral interpretation known as the Midrash, Right? That's not like a rash on your belly. That's the midrash. It's an oral tradition. And it was passed down from generation to generation to generation. And then in the third century BC, they, they began to write down this oral interpretation in something called the Mishnah. All right? It, it took about 300 years to complete. They're still working on it at the time of Jesus. Now, it's not scripture, it's just the interpretation of the rabbis, commentaries by religious leaders. 
However, they imposed it upon the people as if it were Scripture. In fact, if you read just today and our faiths come from here and reading, sometimes they valued their traditions more than the actual Word of God. Jesus said this in our reading from the day. You know, they're coming at him because his disciples did not wash their hands the right way. And he says, why are your disciples breaking our tradition for washing their hands? He said, why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? So literally they got together and they're like, okay, this is what this means, and this is what this means, this is what this means. And they ended up in the mission of, are you ready? They wrote 24 chapters of what it meant to not work on the Sabbath. And again, they put these rules on the people as if they were actually commands of God, that if you violate them, you were sinning and breaking the Sabbath. And, and then you also have, you know, something called the Talmud, you may have heard of that. That's a combination of the Mishnah and the Gomorrah, uh, which is more commentary. And it's, it's I was trying to get an accurate number. Every, most places said it's 2,711 double-sided pages, right? You know, of these rules about what you can and cannot do. And so they got together and they came up, these religious leaders, still in effect today, 39 categories of things that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And, and I'm not going to read them, I just, you can pop, I think I have a stuff, like all those things you couldn't do. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, sowing, plowing, blah, blah. you can just see a whole list right there. Like, and, and then what they did is under the 39 categories, well, what does it mean to do those things? And like, like said, they said like, hey, you cannot carry a load on the Sabbath. They're like, hey, what's a load? And they said, well, a load is something that you could not carry nothing that weighed more than a dried fig. Anything more than a dried fig you couldn't pick up because that's a load. And they sort of think, hey, well, what about our clothes? Is that a load? They go, well, if you're wearing your clothes, it's not a load. But if you're carrying your clothes, it is a load. So if you wore clothes, not a sin. If you were carrying your clothes, you're breaking the Sabbath. So if you wanted to, you're in the living room, you want to take your coat to your bedroom, you could put it on and then take it off when you get there, right? And, and, and um, you could not pick fruit or fruit that fell on the ground. That's considered reaping. You cannot fish because that was considered harvesting. You could not drop two seeds on the ground because that would be considered plow, um, that considered sowing. Now, one seed's fine, but you couldn't drop two. You could spit on a stone, but not on dirt. Because if you spit on dirt, that spitball may create a furrow, and that would be considered plowing. You could not drag a chair across the dirt, because that would be plowing. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with the opposite hand, you broke the Sabbath. If you caught it with the same hand, you did not break the Sabbath. You couldn't take a bath because the water may fall off you and wash the floor. That would be work. You couldn't wear jewelry because jewelry weighed too much unless it was a dry fig. And I don't know how good that would look. A tailor on the Sabbath couldn't carry a needle because they may be tempted to sew something that ripped. A scribe could not carry his pen because he might be tempted to write. A student couldn't carry a book because he might be tempted to read. Wool could not be dyed 
nothing could be sold, nothing could be bought, nothing could be washed. A letter could not be sent, even if he gave it to a heathen for delivery. No fire could be lit. And, and that's why today in, in, in many Orthodox homes, it, they'll have timers on the lights so the lights go on automatically. It, it, it's why you can't drive a car right, because it burns gas, right? It's a, you're creating a, a fire. It's why they'll unscrew the light bulb in the refrigerator because you open it up, the light comes on, that's electricity, that's like a fire. You cannot shave, clip your fingernails, cut your hair, pluck your eyebrows, or comb your hair. Because you comb your hair, hair could come out, and all that would be considered shearing. Uh, you cannot squeeze fruit for juice, that would be threshing. If you're eating berries, you cannot pick out the bad ones before you eat the good ones, but you could eat the good ones and just leave the bad ones behind. You cannot write, you cannot draw. And I go on, 24 chapters, but I think you get the point. Here's a, a picture of the Talmud. See, the religious leaders took what was a gift from God and made it so complicated that it became a burden for the people. Remember Jesus said, you put burdens on the people that you cannot carry and they cannot carry and you will not lift a finger to help them. And you know what the Sabbath had become for the people of Jesus' day? A pain in the neck. It was impossible to rest. You couldn't do anything. No wonder they were laboring in heavy burden. Uh, no wonder they were sick to death of a system that imposed on them by the religious leaders. No wonder Jesus reminded them in Mark 2.27, the Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay, background stuff over. Now our text. Jesus, Matthew records, at that time, in other words, right after the events of Matthew 11, right after the, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Capernaum, uh, right after the great invitation, come to me, all you are weary, and man, they were weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Uh, take my yoke upon you, uh, take my lifestyle and ways upon you, Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is not like the yoke of the religious elite. My yoke is easy, and my burden is not like theirs. My burden is light. At that time, right after Jesus had said, I am the second Moses. I am the ancient path. I am the presence of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees would... See this and say, Houston, we have a problem. Or Jerusalem, we have a problem. Because Jesus should not be traveling on the Sabbath. They determined you could travel 3,000 feet on the Sabbath from your home. That's how far as you could go. Unless the day before you took some food at 3,000 feet and put it there. And then the next, on the Sabbath, you could go there and go another 3,000 feet. Because that food you put there would be considered an extension of your home. So they're traveling. They're walking through the grain fields, and you'd have paths going through the grain fields. And, and so, if you picture Jesus walking with these guys, they're on these dirt paths, and off the sides are these grain fields. And it says, his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Now, this was actually a provision in the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 23, 25, I read this. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, Right? You're hungry, you can eat them, but you may not put a sickle to their standing grain. Like, you can eat the food because you're hungry, but you can't go and say, I'm going to take everything here and take it with me. 
And if you remember in Leviticus, God had this, this in the law. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them from the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I'm the Lord your God. And so the rock of these fields, you know, and the edges have not been gleaned because God said, hey, leave that because you may have some poor people come by or some travelers that are hungry and they need to eat. Matthew continues, when the Pharisees saw this, okay, how did they see it? Because they're stalking Jesus. Like, like they're hiding behind, you know, fields of grain, just waiting, you know. And that, isn't that the way the legals are? That they're just watching you, waiting for you to mess up. Waiting for you to break one of the rules and they're going to pounce right on you. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. I said, they're not breaking the Mosaic law. God said you cannot harvest on the Sabbath, but you know, picking grains of wheat so you can eat is not harvesting. But it was to the Pharisees. They're saying, hey, you're harvesting, that's work. And then Jesus responds. He answers his accuser. I tell you, I love how Jesus uses Scripture to answer them. And by, by the way, that's a great example to us to answer someone's accusations. You know, one of the hot topics in our world today, right, is, is, is um, life in the womb, right? That's a pretty hot topic. And, and uh, I stand with God on that. And someone may come to me and say, hey, are you, are you not for women's health? Or what about rape and incest? I'll answer with Scripture. Here's what I, here's what I believe. I tell them, here's what I believe. I believe... What the Bible says is that each life was knit in the womb by God. That God created it. That God gave that child life. And I don't think anyone has the right to tear that life apart. I go to, we go to Scripture, right? We don't have to answer the arguments. We answer with Scripture. So Jesus, he doesn't even debate with them that's not even harvesting. He just goes straight to Scripture. And he answered, haven't you read? And who's he talking to? Guys who read the Scriptures forever. And it's a dig. He's throwing shade. He does this over 10 times in the Gospels, right? Have you not read? Have you not learned this? He answered, haven't you read what David did? Your hero, the guy you like so much, the guy who had posters in your room when you were a kid growing up? What David did when his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. He's talking about an event that takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is anointed king, but he's running for his life because Saul wants to kill him. He and his men are hungry. He goes to the tabernacle. He walks up to the the priest, I'm Ahimelech. He says, yo, hey, we're hungry. You got anything to eat? He goes, man, all I have is the consecrated bread. It was also known as the showbread, uh, uh, the bread of the presence. And see, every week they would bake 12 loaves of bread. Each loaf was made with about, this is crazy, six pounds of flour. We're talking big bread, right? Big, I didn't even know how big that bread was. And so they, they would do six loaves, put them in two rows of six, the 12 tribes of Israel, and they would sit there for a week. And, and then on the Sabbath, they would remove the old bread and put the new bread they just baked there. And then the priests, and only the priests could eat that bread, and they'd have to eat it in the sanctuary. 
But David and his men wind up eating that bread. And nowhere does Scripture rebuke or condemn them for doing this. And here's Jesus' point. Ceremonial law was never intended to restrict us from meeting valid human need. And Jesus continues to answer the question in the next verse. He continues, or haven't you read in the law? Here he goes again. The priests on the Sabbath, on Sabbath duty in the temple, desecrate the Sabbath, and yet they're innocent. He says, hey, hey, I'm sure you guys are aware that every Sabbath, the priests are violating the Sabbath laws. They're lighting fires. They're lifting animals to altars, and they weigh more than a dry fig. They actually work more on the Sabbath than any other day. Yet they're innocent. I mean, surely you guys aren't calling the priests sinners on the Sabbath, are you? Of course they weren't. Jesus' point. Ceremonial law was never intended to restrict us from serving God in his mission. And then Jesus says something that almost gives them a heart attack. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And that something is me. Jesus is like, hey, uh, the tabernacle rules were set aside. The temple rules were set aside. And I'm telling you, someone greater than the temple is here. And listen, it's hard for us, impossible for us to comprehend just how important the temple was to them. That's where God dwelt. I mean, even today, you know, there's something you may have heard called the, the wailing wall, right? And that's a very special place for the Jewish people. And that's not even part of the temple. That's part of the wall that surrounded the temple area. I mean, the temple was it. It was a big deal. And Jesus is saying to these guys, religious elite, I am greater than the temple. And if in the tabernacle, David could eat the showbread, because ceremony does not override meeting human need. And if the temple, the priest could violate the Sabbath to do God's work. If the tabernacle and the temple tolerated it, then I allow it too. Because I'm greater than both those things. I am greater than the tabernacle. I'm greater than David. I'm greater than the temple. And he continues. If you had known what these words mean, and obviously you so-called experts don't. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, this is the second time that he's quoting Hosea 6, verse 6, which reads, and again, he's only quoting part of it because Ramez, he knows that they'll bring the rest into the present context. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Because, hey, he goes, that, that's what matters. Mercy matters more than that. Now, the first time he quoted Hosea 6, 6 was in Matthew 9, verse 13. When the Pharisees see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they get all bent out of shape. And he says this. On hearing this, while your, while your guy eat with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. <laughs> but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come not to call it the righteous, but sinners. I mean, can you feel the sheer power of this moment? Can, can, you, can you see the face of the focus and force of Jesus' words as he looks these religious leaders in the eye? I'm greater than a temple. I'm greater than a tabernacle. 
If you had known what these words mean, if you had known what God really wanted, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus' point, ceremonial law was never intended to restrict us from extending acts of mercy. There's a book, I haven't read the book, I've read quotes. I have another book of the author. It's called The Accidental Pharisee. Uh, He says this, the absolute worst thing about legalism is what it does to mercy. What it does to mercy. And then Jesus says something that they just couldn't handle. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What a claim. Either he's a blasphemer or he's God. He says, hey, you're not in charge of the Sabbath. I'm in charge of the Sabbath. I wrote it. I interpreted it. You know what else? I fulfilled it. You know what? He did fulfill the Sabbath. And you know why we don't keep the Sabbath anymore? Because he fulfilled it. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that because of Christ, we have entered into rest. Hebrews 4, 9 says, there remains then a rest for the people of God. And Jesus is that rest. For anyone, Hebrews 4, 10, anyone who entered God's rest also rests from his work, trying to measure up, trying to be good enough, just as God rested from his labor. No more work to be right with God. No more follow Sabbath rules to be right with God. Understand, the Sabbath was a figure, a picture of rest. God wanted a Sabbath to be like, hey, guys, this is what rest is like, and a true rest is coming. But they had so perverted rest that no one wanted the Sabbath rest that the Pharisees had. They destroyed it. They made it a burden for the people. So Jesus comes along and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle, love, and heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus came and fulfilled the Sabbath. We don't need a shadow anymore. We don't need an illustration anymore because we're living in the reality. Okay, let me illustrate this way. Let's say you're away from your spouse for an extended period of time. Uh, uh, maybe you're deployed or something like that. And, and while you're deployed, you miss them a lot and you have a picture of them that you look at often. Ah, oh, there they are. really miss them. Now, what would you think of someone who came home and now they're in the presence of their spouse, but they care more about the picture? I'm going to hug my picture of the spouse when, wait a second, your spouse is right there? Like, it's not that the picture wasn't important, but hey, I, I'm with you now. I don't need the picture, right? That, that's what he's saying. You don't need the shadow because you have Jesus. Amen? Let's move on in our text, looking for a reason. Going from that place, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a withered hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Okay, here's their rule. The only medical treatment you could do on the Sabbath was if someone's going to die, keep someone from dying. The Mishnah said that you could not give oral medication. You could not tie or put on bandages. You could not set a broken limb. You cannot pop a dislocated joint in place. You cannot 
pour cold water over a break to reduce the swelling. You, you could not open an abscess to get rid of the infection unless that infection was going to kill you that very day. It's like if you fell under a pile of bricks and I saw you, like, like I, 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 I could take the bricks off of you and say, hey, you know what, I, I think you'll be okay. I'll be back tomorrow and I'll dig you out. So this guy has a withered hand. He's not dying for that withered hand. And the Pharisaic legalist would think he's going to break the Sabbath. He said to them, see, they missed the point. They just have, they just don't like Jesus. <laughs> if any of you have a sheep and it falls in a pit on Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Sure you did. I saw you do it just last week when I was going through your town. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? A lot more valuable. I mean, animals are cool, but people are made in the image and likeness of God. Amen? Therefore, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then Jesus said to the man, and Luke tells us that Jesus had the guy, he said, hey, I want you to stand up front in front of everybody. And I'm saying, everybody knows the rule. Jesus can't heal this guy's hand. That guy's not going to die. Is he going to break the rules? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. It was completely restored, just as sound as the others. And the Pharisees, instead of rejoicing that the guy's withered hand was healed, instead of rejoicing that now this guy can get back to work, provide for his family, the Pharisees, instead of bending their knees and praising God that the Messiah was standing right before them, went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now we can see why, right, from their perspective. Why they had to kill, destroy, and abolish Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a threat to their power, to their position, to how they define a relationship with God. And he said such things in these last two chapters. You're worse than and worse off than the wicked cities and are suffer more than they will. I am greater than David. I'm greater than the temple. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, our big so what? This will be quick. Don't be pharisaical. Don't create a bunch of rules and traditions that you think make you right with God and that you think others need to follow so that they can be right with God. In the Accidental Pharisee, author writes, it's easy to see the scriptural misalignment in the crazy guy on the street corner with a turn or burn sign. The same with the cut and paste theology of people who toss out the scriptures they don't like. It's also easy to spot it on the pompous co-worker with the big Bible on his desk, a chip on his shoulder, and a tiny heart on his chest, to self-proclaim great witness for the Lord, whom everyone tries to avoid and no one wants to eat lunch with. But we seldom see it in the mirror. Right? It's so easy to be a Pharisee. It's so easy to make rules that other people need to follow to be right with God. Don't be Pharisaical. Next, people are more important. They're ceremonial rules and our traditions. We can forget that. I remember in a church in Georgia when, you know, 
some small child broke the sacred rule of running in the church. Oh, my God. And, and this lady, first name was Nancy. And, and, and she's just being so hateful. And I go, Nancy, chill out. We shouldn't run the church. I said, what's worse? Him running the church. Are you looking so hateful right now to a little kid? Well, she didn't like me, but... <laughs> You know, or, or, or you know, when I was in East Tampa, my first church, like, you had a rule. If you're up on stage, you had to wear a jacket, right? That's like in the Bible, right? I don't wear a jacket. You're, like, going to go to hell. It's hard for you to believe that actually was in my, my wardrobe at the time. Yeah, but I was sitting on the second pew, and, and, and Judy, my first wife, was there and dying of cancer, was freezing cold. I took my jacket off to put over her. And when I went to go on the stage, people were trying, one guy was trying to give me a jacket. Like, I mean, rather than saying, here's a guy whose wife is dying, putting his jacket around her, what an image. They're like, oh my gosh, he's about to go on stage. I didn't take his jacket, by the way. He didn't like me much either. It's like, are you kidding me? Really? We can do that? Years ago, it was in here. I don't know who did it or who was involved in it, but I know about it. Where someone wasn't maybe dressed the right way. And someone said to this person before church started, hey, maybe next time you come to church, you could dress better. And that person went outside and he didn't say in the building for it. Like, I, I wanted so bad to know who it was. No one would tell me. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you're kidding me. That, that's more important. But we can fall into that trap. People are more important than ceremony rules, Right? Let Jesus be our Sabbath rest. Let him rest you. Let him salvation you. Let him grace you. Come to him. Let him carry the burden. Let him pull the weight. And then extend his Sabbath rest to others. His Sabbath rest. See, see, here's what I'm convinced of, and I know you are as well. See, a lot of people who reject Jesus are rejecting a pharisaical version of Jesus. They're like, that's what Christianity is? You're so mean and hateful. You say all these rules, but yet you hate people. You gossip people at work. You don't live a good life. They're like, you know, we need to extend Jesus' Sabbath rest to people because they need it so, so dearly. So we can read something like this. It really does apply to us. And look in the mirror this week, and I will as well. Hey, do I have any pharisaical traits right now that I need to put aside? Am I making people less important than the way I think things should be done? And then am I fully resting in Jesus for my salvation or do I think I have to work for it? And then am I trying to bring his Sabbath rest to people who are so weary and burdened by life? Would you stand and pray with me? Remember, we're going to sing this worship song and we have our communion off to the sides that you can grab Jesus, we love you. We're amazed by you. Thank you for being our Sabbath rest. Thank you that we don't have to work and strive and perform and do and do to be right with you. Thank you that you rest us, that you grace us. And God, help us to be a true reflection of your heart and your mercy into this world. Holy Spirit, whatever each of us needs individually, to take and apply and live out in our lives, may we do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.